Greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Rate Crime. I'm your host, Frank Zafiro, and this is a feature episode with T.G. Wolf as our guest. Uh, now, she writes uh, mysteries and also has a podcast that is just different enough that I think you might be interested. Well, we'll talk about that once we uh, get to TG. Uh, but first, I need to let you know that uh, Wrong Place Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. And here from Down and Out Books to talk about some of the February releases from the publisher is Lance Wright. It's hard to believe it's already February, Frank. And though it's the shortest month of the year, there is no shortage of titles being published by Down and Out Books. First up is the second legal thriller by Todd Henderson, State of Shock, featuring law professor Royce Johnson, who finds himself at the intersection of higher education, Chicago politics, big money, and murder. We also have another second in series title, Tina Wolf's Suicide Squeeze with Diamond, one name for a woman with one purpose. The book's tagline, secrets are like dead men, best kept cold and buried. Finally, I'd like to talk about two anthologies coming out this month. Bullets and Other Hurting Things, edited by Rick Allerman, is a tribute to the late Bill Kreider, a collection of 20 stories from the stellar list of authors honoring the memory of their friend and colleague. And The Great Filling Station Holdup edited by Josh Pachter, with 16 crime stories inspired by the songs of Jimmy Buffett. This is the fiction our parents warned us about. That's all for now, Frank. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you, Lance, and uh, some great books coming out in February from Down Out Books. And I'll also remind you, they have a tremendous back catalog, uh, over 600 titles, some great crime fiction written by some uh, cool people, many of whom I'm proud to call friend. Uh, so let's not uh, fool about anymore. Let's uh, talk to T.G. Wolf, uh, whose uh, new book, Suicide Squeeze, is out, uh, and, uh, and find out about that podcast I mentioned. Well, hey, T., welcome to the show. Thanks, Frank, for having me. I love listening. Happy to be here. Well, I'm glad to get you on. Uh, one of the things we'll talk about here uh, a little later on is the fact that you are a podcaster as well. Um, but I want to start by talking about your your books. And one of the things that pops up on your website really prominently uh, when one looks at your books is the fact that uh, they're set in Cleveland. The one series is set in Cleveland, my De La Cruz series. Uh, I am a native Clevelander born in the city of. And when I first started writing that series, I needed a place that I knew intimately. And in my opinion, you don't know any place better than the place where you got your driver's license and you drove everywhere you possibly could. <laughs> yeah. I, I can still remember one of the first times I made a wrong turn and drove into a steel mill. Like, yeah, yeah, that was a special moment. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually been to Cleveland once. I spent about a week there when I was teaching uh, police leadership. And uh, and it was an interesting town with a uh, – certainly I thought it had its own character uh, well above and beyond just the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. When I grew up in Cleveland, when I was growing up, the the place that you came from really kind of mattered. 
So I grew up on the near west side of Cleveland, and the neighborhood I grew up in was white and Puerto Rican, with white being subdivided into Polish and Italian. And so you would always ask people, or, you know, where are you from? Well, everybody was from Cleveland, so that's not what you meant. And, and so there was always this part of your heritage that was innate. I remember the first time I learned that not everybody had spaghetti and meatballs on Thanksgiving, that some people had kibasi and some people, <laughs> some people had rice and beans with their turkey. And um, that's some of the richness that I think has come into my writing that I didn't plan on. That is just came with me with being from Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely. I mean, not to sound cliche, but it it's definitely has the feel of a very blue collar town. It, it felt very uh, similar in 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 some positive ways to my experiences in Pittsburgh. And I mentioned that in the classroom to the cops that I was teaching, and I, I they just about beat the hell out of me and threw me out of the classroom. Yeah, we're not yeah, like Pittsburgh. Like, <laughs> You said that. You said yeah. that out loud. Yeah, I just about got my ass kicked. And um, but but the <laughs> <Deservedly> but what, <laughs> well, you know, and, and I had a great experience in Pittsburgh, which is ironic because I hate the Penguins. I'm a Flyers fan. Mm-hmm. But um, the thing about it was that the the part that I really liked that was similar to me uh, was that pride of of their town. There, it was a very palpable and very positive pride. It was the kind of pride that didn't say, "Hey, we're." better than you. It said, Hey, we love our town and we'll show you why while you're here and hopefully you'll love it too. And it was, so it was an inclusive pride. Uh, and it was very fierce and, and, and in both cases too, I think there's a lot of external pressures knocking on, on those particular departments. So their tenacity and their perseverance in the midst of all that was, was pretty impressive to me. And I got the feeling that that was, wasn't, just the agency, I got the feeling that that was the community, that was the town. I, I think that's spot on. Um, I actually do like Pittsburgh quite a bit. I ended mm-hmm. up with a couple of projects there. And and after I poked my head in and made sure they weren't going to kick my ass because <laughs> of the way I pronounced the letter O, um, I love the people there. Oh, God, I uh, love the food. I love eating in Pittsburgh as much as I love eating in Cleveland. Uh, I mean, it's all right up there with like eating in Rome. It's good stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, tell me about the letter O. Well, so there was a gentleman that I worked with whose name was Don, D-O-N. When I was introduced, it said, oh, Don will be coming in soon. And so I was expecting a woman <laughs> to walk in the door. <laughs> a woman did not. And ever since that day, whenever I would go into the building, because I'm not the quietest person in the house, they would hear me coming. They're like, oh, we could tell it was you. We could hear your O's. <laughs> <laughs> Pittsburgh had a couple of interesting things too. Like they would say, uh, we're going to head down to the store and at, uh, they had that little and at ending on, mm-hmm. on their sentences and, and such. Uh, well, those are the things that make, uh, for, for the flavor of, a, of a town and really, I think, uh, bring it a background to, to fiction. It really draws the reader in. And you said you set your, uh, De La Cruz case files series there in, in Cleveland. Uh, what, what are those exactly? What is this a procedural, a detective novel? You know, I, I think it is classified as a procedural, but I really focus on the people part of it and not the procedure. I am not a cop. I don't have a policing or legal background. So when my books are talking about procedure, it really is the procedure of solving the mystery. Mm -hmm. If if there's anything I think I'd like your 
listeners to take away about what to expect with my stories, it's that they're puzzles and they're puzzles that are meant to be solved. So uh, Jesus de la Cruz is a Cleveland detective. Uh, He is a homicide detective and they are true mysteries. So the procedure part comes from how do you get from the dead body to the end, to the guilty verdict? And you you make uh, quite a lot on your website, actually, of your love for puzzles. And uh, as I read your bio and saw that you've been an engineer in your life, um, that made a lot of sense to me that, that puzzles would be something that uh, were, was attractive. It is funny because so many people will say, well, how can you be an engineer during the day and then write mysteries at night? Like those two things, oh, no, they shouldn't I, have anything in common. I, I completely disagree. I see the parallels. Uh, Right, because that's what I do. You know, whether I'm trying to figure out um, how we're going to build this wastewater treatment plant or how we're, you know, helping to inform some owner's decisions to mapping out how, you know, that person got in that position um, and, and, and the body there. Those are the pretty much the exact same processes. Mm-hmm. It takes is, an orderly mind to, to do both. So it takes a very orderly mind. And you also have to have an eye for the invisible. Because in engineering, a lot of times the problem that you're solving is actually a symptom. It's not the problem. Mm -hmm. But you have to be able to recognize it as a symptom to go look for the problem. Right. And so when I'm writing fiction, when I'm writing these mysteries, I find that, that I'm taking the opposing point of view and I'm trying to make a symptom look like it's the problem you know, essentially burying the lead. But um, no matter how you slice it, it very much comes back to the scientific method and being able to put things in order, test the theory, change your assumption, test the theory. And it sounds pretty boring when you put it that way. (laughs) But when you put it in the context of fiction, it becomes just, as you know, just endlessly entertaining. Right. And every time you're testing the theory, somebody's getting thumped on the melon or chased in a car or something. Exactly. Uh, well, the De La Cruz case files, that's not your only series. You have a another series, uh, the Diamond series. Uh, where's that set? Those are international ones. So Diamond lives uh, in Washington, D.C., um, but her escapades take her all over the world. And interestingly enough, she had been following me as as my family and I vacationed. And so I'm not sure what COVID's going to do to her world. <laughs> The first one that was called Widow's Run began in Washington and then went to Rome uh, and to Tuscany. Um, And the second one, the one that is uh, releasing on February 8th here, that one began in Washington, D.C. and then went to Scotland, uh, which was our last vacation pre-COVID. And so she, she fights her way through Edinburgh and Edinburgh Castle and over to Loch Ness and and all around, uh, all around that region. I love Scotland, beautiful place and beautiful people. And so many of the things that are in that book really did come from our real life experiences. I haven't been there yet. Uh, we went over to Ireland uh, pre-COVID, uh, but uh, Scotland is still on the, on the list for, for sure. Um, and we've been to, to Italy and, and Rome was, was particularly fascinating. I have a feeling I've been to where uh, Diamond's third book will take place because um, 
I think it'll start in Washington, D.C. and end on Netflix, which is where <laughs> she probably spent most of COVID. And I've been on that. I've been there, too. <laughs> yeah, I was joking around saying that her third book was going to have to be called something like Domestic Violence because she's not going to be able to leave the States. <laughs> I don't know that that's going to work for her. Um, one, I don't know if your writing is is the same, Frank, but what I find is these two series have minds of their own. Mm-hmm. And so where, where De La Cruz has a, a very deliberate pacing that goes with, you know, solving a mystery, solving a crime, Diamond stories are much more adventurous. And, and actually, the inspiration for the writing style came from the Percy Jackson books. I had read them out loud to my kids when they were younger, and I loved that um, Rick Riordan had made each chapter its own little story. So I could read one each night and and the kids were happy and kept their attention. And so I mimicked that for adults. So every chapter in Diamond has a complete story arc. And at the same time, it's advancing this bigger story. And let me tell you, it was a really challenging way to write. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine having that sense of closure, but still enough of a cliffhanger to want to turn the page to the next chapter. That's that's there's some art there. And I never seem to make things easy on myself. You know, whenever <laughs> something gets too easy, I'm like, hey, I have an idea. Let's see if we could do this blindfolded, standing on one leg. And uh, yeah, let's use that pencil. <laughs> well, you kind of took that attitude into another project that I mentioned at the top of the episode, and, and that is uh, your podcast, Mysteries to Die For. Tell, tell us a little bit about that, because it's not a typical podcast. Mysteries to Die For is a musical take on storytelling. Um, it came out of out of a lark. My son is very musically inclined. And the one day he was playing around on the piano and he played out a bass line. And I had Widow's Run in my hand at the time. And so I began reading to his bass line. And it worked. It completely worked. Even though I had written that with just, you know, like you normally do, by him playing this bass line, it changed the way I presented it. And so we did it live. We were at a bookstore in Chicago. Uh, he brought his keyboard and we performed it. And the people who were in the audience really enjoyed it. And we had a great time. And so it became the start of the idea. Like, well, that didn't take us too long to do a chapter. We can make this recordable. And so that began Mysteries to Die For. The first season is the book, Widow's Run. Each episode is a chapter. Um, That one, I think the last one dropped last August. And now we are booting up here to drop season two. And we're doing a season two is called The Originators. And what I did was go back to the first stories that were considered mysteries. So I'm back in the 1800s. And of course, because mystery wasn't a genre then, Um, These are classified as horror, as romance, as adventure. But, you know, we're seeing the very first um, police detectives, the very first private detectives, the first amateur detectives. Um, It's been it's been eye opening and a lot more fun than I I thought it would be when I started it. So are you wanting to surprise people with what you're going to be uh, performing or or can you share some of the classics? I mean, I'm thinking uh, Poe is going to be in there most likely. And, and what are some of the others? So Poe is the opener, um, Murders in the Rue Morgue. Of course, and yeah. when we perform these, 
um, I perform them. I, I, to an extent, I do adaptations. I try to stick as closely as I can to the storyline, but 1800s English is just not podcast friendly. Mm-hmm. So these are adaptations. And we perform them all the way up to the point where the detective knows who did it. And then we pause and we try to give the audience some time to, to register their own voice or voice, voices, votes, however you want to say them together. Um, and then we do the reveal. And so, yes, we start out with Murders in the Rue Morgue, which was definitely one of the earliest examples. Um, we did Wilkie Collins' The Moonstone. We just finished recording that one in two episodes because it featured two different detectives. Anna Catherine Green is going to be dropping soon. It was her A Strange Disappearance. I think she was one of the first women we're going to feature and uh, it's a little bit of a shame about her as I did some reading because a fascinating woman and was really like the woman who inspired Agatha Christie. Hmm. Um, and yet her stories are very Victorian. And so some of it doesn't really resonate to the modern ear. And I, it seems like as I've read more, that, if, if nothing else, has really pushed her out of the spotlight that maybe she belongs to be in. Um, Alan Pinkerton of Pinkerton Detective Agencies. He wrote several of his adventures up as mysteries, very well-written mysteries. Um, And of course, Mark Twain. I loved reading Tom Sawyer Detective. The way that Huck Finn tells a story, oh, he inspired me. (laughs) I was like, this is fun reading. We'll get right back to that interview with T.G. Wolf, but uh, now is the time on the show where I turn things over to the experts. And by experts, I mean folks who are very well equipped to recommend some great reads to you. And uh, if there's one group of people that knows good crime fiction, it's people who write crime fiction. So uh, this month, we are going to hear from Alan Orloff, Bruce Robert Coffin, Robert McCaw, and Susan Shea. Hi, my name is Alan Orloff, and I recently read a great book by uh, Karen Dion. It's called The Wicked Sister, and if you have read her other book, uh, The Marsh King's Daughter, uh, you'll know what a great writer she is. That book was great. It garnered a lot of awards, a lot of attention, and her latest book is right along those same lines, sort of a domestic suspense, and it had me turning the pages as fast as I've ever turned pages before. So I highly recommend The Wicked Sister by Karen Dion. This is Bruce Robert Coffin, and uh, I was asked for a book recommendation, and I have to say I'm uh, reading a lot more lately than I used to. And one of my favorites from the last few years uh, has to be William Kent Kruger's Ordinary Grace, um, probably one of the most amazing stories I've, I've read in a long time. Uh, I couldn't help but be reminded of To Kill a Mockingbird uh, in the, the quality and the, the way the story is actually uh, laid out. Uh, highly recommend William Kent Kruger's Ordinary Grace. Uh, my name is Bob McCaw. Uh, I'm the uh, author of the uh, Koa Kane series. Uh, and um, uh, the book Death of a Messenger has just been uh, published and released. 
as I've said uh, to uh, uh, lots of people, I read uh, lots of uh, fiction and nonfiction and have many favorites, but just discovered a, a new one, which uh, I really like, which is uh, The Splendid and the Vile by Eric uh, Larson, uh, who also wrote uh, The Devil uh, in the White City, which is another favorite of mine, and several other wonderful books. The Splendid and the Vile presents an intimate picture of Winston Churchill and his family during the first year of his tenure um, as the British prime minister during World War II. It takes us from uh, Hitler's invasion of Belgium and Holland through Dunkirk and into the Blitz, the Germany's bombing of London. Uh, that history is often recited, but what makes this book special is the very intimate picture, the portrait of true leadership in the most dire circumstances. I mean, it bears all of the strange quirks of Winston Churchill, but he's the man of the hour who manages to inspire his countrymen to come together and survive the unimaginable. And it's one of the history's greatest tales of leadership by a man who was determined to tell his countrymen the awful, unvarnished truth, and at the same time, inspire them with hope. And uh, I think it's a story of our time. Hi, my name's Susan Shea. I'm the author of two series. One is the Danny O'Rourke series. The other one is about a couple who moves to rural France, uh, set in Burgundy. I want to recommend a book that isn't a new book, but it's not an old book either. It's by Tommy Orange, and it's called There, There. And it's the story of a bunch of different people who come to Oakland for the big Oakland powwow. They're Native Americans, as is Tommy. And it's an extraordinary book. It's crime fiction, but it's more than crime fiction. Um, and I, I hardly recommend it. It came out in 2018. It got a tremendous amount of critical acclaim, but not so much noticed in our field. And I think it should be. It is a crime novel. It's about individuals, and the uh, the big Oakland powwow is almost like a star that's exerting gravity on these people who come together in sometimes funny and, at the end, very, very tragic uh, results in a big shootout. So I, I really do recommend it. Um, I think it's a great read. It's rich. It's different. And it is crime fiction, but it's really a big book. I love it. All right. Some great recommendations there, folks. I hope you, you check them out. When a writer recommends a book, uh, it's, it's because it's a good story and it's well-written because we're a pretty uh, discerning lot. Um, speaking of good books, uh, let's get back to our conversation with T.G. Wolf. So a little bit about your background there. It says you're an engineer, but and and we talked about how that uh, uh, you know informs your love of puzzles and and how it ties into to uh, writing mysteries. But I had a couple of other questions about that. What type of engineer are you? First off, I am a civil engineer, and so for those who aren't familiar with civil engineering, if you look around you, everything about you is that's part of civil society is part of in civil engineering roads, bridges, buildings. And I actually uh, specialize in drinking water and wastewater for the clean and the poo. <laughs> so we live, we live in, in Redmond, Oregon and central Oregon. And we, 
I live really close to the Dry Canyon, which is like a city park, but it's it's a beautiful canyon area. But at one end of one end of the canyon is a wastewater treatment plant, and I'm always surprised at how infrequently you smell anything from it. I don't, you know, you can sometimes, but it's. Uh, uh, not, not, you know, doesn't feel like you're living next to a latrine or something, but whenever you go down there, you can see the twirling, you know, water circular mm-hmm. things going on. And I always have to wonder how does that go from there to coming out of my shower head or even more frightening out of my faucet, <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, uh, it's, it's like magic. I mean, I, it, it's, yeah. it's civilization. Science. Where, where, it's science. Is it chemical? <laughs> Um, so is it a wastewater plant or a drinking water plant? Uh, well, it, it looks pretty wastewater to me. <laughs> so in a wastewater plant, uh, the fundamental biology, and this is breaking it down to the grassroots level, is bugs eat poo. And so the processes in that plant, they take out everything that is is hard and solid, and they leave behind everything that has that has value, that has elemental value. And then it uses literally bacteria and the bacteria consume those nitrogen, phosphorus, you know, all of those, those things that we think of as waste, but are actually food. And so what comes out the other end is clear water. And then it's usually either disinfected chemically or using ultraviolet light so that any harmful pathogens that made it through to the end can't hurt you. So a lot of times, wastewater treatment plants put out cleaner water than the water of the streams they're dumping into. Now, maybe not there in Oregon where you are, but at least, you know, in the 1970s <laughs> Lake Erie that I grew up swimming in. <laughs> it is pretty It is pretty clean here. It's the Pacific Northwest and and it, it is pretty nice. Uh, we're pretty lucky in that regard. Um, the other thing about engineering then, uh, and, and what you just explained is, is both fascinating and frightening at the same time, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> the, the other thing I wanted to ask you about engineering, though, is uh, a little bit of engineering anyway, is that you said you love puzzles. What Besides writing mysteries and what you do on the job, does your love of puzzles take any other form? I mean, are you a crossword Sudoku person? Do you play, uh, you know, puzzle games on the computer or, or anything? What what other form does that take? You know, I'm a sucker for just about any puzzle. Um, jigsaw puzzles, I'm a big one for. I do do crossword puzzles. Um, lately, I don't do much on the phone as far as games, but solitaire. I um, seem to be a big solitaire player. Um, I love those. I can't remember that the actual name is. It's like tangram or tanagram, where you have triangle shapes and you have to put them together to make one bigger shape. Hmm. I. It doesn't seem that for me. There's a limitation on the type of puzzle. I love them whether they are whether they're number oriented, whether they're picture, whether they are alpha alphanumeric, um, and I think that's why it fits in so well with the writing and the engineering. So you know, when I'm doing the engineering, it is more numbers based, mm. and I can look at a string of numbers and I can intuit from a string what it's telling. me. And being able to do that, to be able to transpose between like that comes into play with writing because, as you know, you have to imagine. Well, you have to imagine in the correct dimensions. 
and you have to imagine <laughs> with the correct with the correct environmental circumstances. I mean, how many times have you read something and something happens, you know, in the dark of night, only they can see it crystal clear? Mm-hmm. Well, no. I think partially my love of puzzles is what makes me a really harsh critic because when things don't fit together in an orderly manner like that, it kind of drives me crazy. Yeah, I have pet peeves as well. Um, the the uh, things that don't fit or aren't right. Um, they're a little more specific to uh, law enforcement presentation, just because that's more my uh, area of experiential expertise. But I totally understand what you're saying. Um, it's a little bit intimidating to talk with someone like yourself who is so spatially uh, skilled, because uh, that is probably my weakest skill set is spatial relations. I mean, my wife is way better at it than I am. Um, and, and frequently I'll be, <laughs> I'll be take, you know, it's so bad. I'll take a container out, you know, for leftovers and I'll have to puzzle whether, <laughs> right can then. I, can I get, can I get all that food in here? And she can take one look at it and go, you need a bigger one or that's fine. Or, you know, whatever. And see, that's funny to me because I'm intimidating, intimidated talking to you because I don't have any of that policing background and yet here I am authoring a series that features those characters you know I don't I'm not a physical person I don't know how some of the for as much as I'm spatial I'm not physical so you know in some of your books I've loved some of your scenes with the with the different the action sequences the fights the what happens when two people you know literally crash together because I don't have that sort of awareness well and I I would say that I think your exacting uh, personality probably makes up for what you perceive as as a shortcoming there, um, but it does speak to different styles of writing. I mean, different points of emphasis. What you choose to emphasize as a writer is part of your style, and and so you know, I'm sure we have very very different styles in that regard. Your style amazes me. Um, the few books of yours I read, especially the first one. What was the first one? Was it in the cut? Uh, that is uh, one of my books. It's the uh, that's the backdrop is a uh, outlaw motorcycle gang. You had me hooked with the character. I loved the character, and let's just say the things that happened to him. Well, it made me a little gun shy when I picked up the second book. <laughs> I was afraid to like anybody because I didn't know what was going to happen to them. <laughs> so I had to protect myself and put a little distance between me and your characters. <laughs> well, that's uh, music to my ears. You know, that's what you want as a as a writer, uh, for sure. And you know, your your newest book, Suicide Squeeze, just came out. We've been talking about that. Um, and, and diamond is, is the lead of that. And you, you talked about her adventures and her going uh, many of the same places that you've gone. Uh, but let's, let's talk a little bit about who she is as a character. I mean, who, what's her background? What's her personality? How would you describe her to someone who doesn't know her? Well, diamond as a character, um, grew out of an interview I heard on NPR. And I, unfortunately, I don't remember who was being interviewed, but they were talking about, the detectives of old, and how one of the things that made them so sort of powerful was that they had nothing to lose. And so they didn't have the boundaries on them that, you know, a cop has on him or or a person who has a family has on them. And I thought this was a fascinating concept, and I wanted a character like that. And I 
as you know, you don't always get to pick the genders of your characters, even though readers may think that you do. Mm-hmm. Diamond was female. And so I really had to go on this sort of, okay, why does she have nothing? And that led to the backstory that Diamond has a master's degree in chemical engineering, and she specialized in things that went bang. And um, she was recruited by the CIA uh, as she was a grad student. And she had a great life. She had the life she always dreamt of. She was on the international circuit. She was trying to foil the, the type of terrorists that just make us all afraid to leave our houses. And then she met a guy. And she met a guy that she was never supposed to like. He was a a nerdy professor who specialized in growing quinoa to feed starving populations. (laughs) Uh, Match made in heaven. (laughs) It was. And so she stepped away from the CIA. She began working for an experimental um, social experiment where she worked with the hardest and smartest of DC's teenagers. And so she found out that life could still be fun and challenging, even if she wasn't jetting across the globe. And life was just as good, but it was different. And then he died. And so her first adventure is figuring out if his death really was the accident that the Italian police said it was. Okay, spoiler, if it was, there wouldn't be a book. (laughs) (laughs) And hence the title, Widow's Run. Yes. But then she gets through that and she finds that she still doesn't have anything. You know, she's she solved the mystery. Woohoo for her. She finished everything on to the do list. You know, rah, rah, rah. She still didn't have anything. Mm-hmm. And so now as we're as Suicide Squeeze picks up immediately after Widow's Run. In fact, the opening scene of Suicide Squeeze is the closing scene of Widow's Run. And She's suicidal. She has nothing to lose. And so when a case falls in her lap, that is practically a mirror to her own, with the exception of this woman's husband might still be alive. She has no choice but to take it. But there's no rules because she doesn't care if she survives it. Yeah, that's a dangerous uh, position for an opponent to be in if you're facing that, someone who has nothing to lose. If you have nothing to lose, I mean, your options suddenly are legion. You can do anything you want uh, to try to accomplish your goal. That was one of the most surprising things that when I really took those boundaries off myself, because, you know, I would work her into corners and then let her fight her way out. And, and there were no rules. Like she could blow up a building if she wanted to because mm-hmm. she didn't care. I tried hard to keep her balanced. She's very smart. And, and because she's very smart, and partially because I'm not all that physical of a person, I'm not a martial arts person, I didn't want her to become cliche and fight her way out of every problem. She had to think her way out of it because she was at times a single woman with no weapons and she was outnumbered. She wasn't fighting her way out. Well, she was talking her way out. <laughs> 
Well, it's completely weird to me that uh, an author with an engineer for a background would have a protagonist who has to think their way out of a problem. That's so <laughs> against type. <laughs> but you're, you know, you're right. It keeps her from being uh, a cliche. And 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 look, those those high octane action thrillers are great for what they are, and and I'm not knocking them at all. Um, but there's something to be said for for having a. a protagonist who is grounded and and feels real and even though you know spectacular things might be happening to her uh a reader could literally put themselves in her shoes and yeah maybe they wouldn't be as skilled as getting getting out of those situations but what she does isn't you know james bond stuff it's uh not salt it's you know it's it's something that you know is more grounded in reality and i i tend to enjoy those a little bit more my wife kind of likes the a little bit more of the uh fantasy action if you will you know the over the top mm-hmm. stuff she likes the superhero movies and I, i'm not a huge fan uh necessarily so everybody's taste is different in what they like to read and what they like to write I wanted to circle back for a second, though, to your your podcast. Uh, one of the things that happens in producing podcasts, uh, as as you well know, is mistakes happen. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. you flub you flub what you're trying to say, or you forget uh, to go, you know, ask a question or whatever. Uh, how much of that do you encounter when you're uh, recording for Mysteries to Die For? We encountered a lot of that our first season, as you know. Podcasting is its own medium, and there's a learning curve to it, whether it's the equipment, whether it's the software, whether it's how you speak and how you prepare your mind for it. And we didn't know what we were getting into the first season. So if (laughs) people give a listen, hopefully they will laugh with me as I learned very quickly that I cannot do accents. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm horrible. And so no, ma- <laughs> no matter where a character's from, you're going to hear my Midwest accent. <laughs> but because Mysteries to Die For was born out of a live experience, my son Jack, who is now 17, refuses to edit. He wants the audience to have that live experience and maybe it's even more important now in, in this COVID era we live in. Mm-hmm. And so now I even worked it into the intro. It says, we do these live front to back, no fakes, no retakes, no breaks. And I mean, it's got to be horrible for him to allow me to retake it. I can't remember what episode, but I goofed. It must have been season two here because I was reading and I just blew the line and I, I basically spoiled the entire plot. <laughs> well, he, his microphone is, uh, is directional, of course. And so he has it pointed at the strings of his piano. And so you can't hear him speak unless he pulls it back. And so he and I start having this argument, but nobody can hear him. So I sound like the insane person going, oh, Jack, I just messed that up. Can we record it? Well, why can't we record it? But I want to record it. <laughs> and then I'm like, well, we're backing up two lines because somebody's being stubborn. <laughs> and as he re-listened to it, because he had headphones on, he's just dying laughing. And at first, I mean, I was really embarrassed. Like, I want to be a professional. I want to mm-hmm. put our best out there. And then I realized that that, too, is what I love about live shows, live theater, live music. I love that anything can happen. 
And so, yes, I still really try for those things not to happen. But if they do, the audience is going to hear it. And, and I hope that they laugh. I hope that they listen like, okay, let's see what Tina's going to get right or wrong this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, podcasting has become such a bigger thing in recent years to where there's a lot of very professional, uh, high-grade podcasts out there. And you have celebrities uh, that have podcasts. I mean, Dax Shepard has a great podcast, Armchair Expert. And that's obviously professionally produced. You can get that. But I think that the cool thing about podcasts is the character of the podcast. And so I think what you're doing is fantastic. I, I, I try, I've been too concerned about it as well at times. Um, but I did have one episode where my cat was being a complete jerk and I ended up leaving it in just because it cracked me up. And, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, you're not paying for it, right? So if you don't right. like, if you don't like it, that it's not, uh, you know, Madison Avenue, Hollywood slick, then, you know, I guess, uh, you know, you got what you paid for. Um, how is it working with your son? How fun is that? It is fun. It's challenging in that I have to remember to take my mom hat off. When I'm here at work, I work with all different kinds of professionals, including like marketing and graphic artists. And I trust them to be professional and to take care of their stuff. And so it was really hard for me to stop being mom and to let Jack be the producer mm-hmm. and to let Jack be be the piano player and to follow his lead instead of me having to have the lead. But it's, I feel like it's really working out. Yes. There's times he's a teenager and he's like, God, mom, do we have to do this? But as soon as he sits down at the piano, like his entire person changes, he loves performing. And so even if he doesn't remember it until I nag him to death, once he's there and we're together, It's so much fun to be able to create something that truly is both of us. It's not all my way by any means, and it's not all his way. And then we've uh, we've dragged his girlfriend into it a little bit. She is a an artist, and so she did the cover art for season one. She did it using images, and now for season two, she's actually drawing the covers. So I'm really excited to see how she envisions the stories that I'm telling. It's fun working with people that young because, number one, they have so much imagination. But number two, life hasn't beaten them down into rules. You know what I mean? Like even when we don't consciously as as writers or as creators put ourselves within boundaries, like we're in glass boxes just because of how old we are just because of all the stuff that made us who we are. And that hasn't happened to them yet. So they can be incredibly free. Sometimes it's a little uncomfortable, I'll admit. But I mean, where else would I get that kind of experience? Mm-hmm. It's kind of neat too, as you're, as a parent, get to see your, your, your kids becoming adults and discovering themselves. And part of that process is them discovering you as not just a fallible person and not the you know, parental God, they once thought you were, even if they resented Mm -hmm. you, but also finding out what is actually magical about you as an individual and, and separating their perception of of you as a parent into that, that 
you know, that, that individual view. Uh, and that's kind of an interesting, I mean, it doesn't happen in all relationships, I guess, but it, and it happens at different stages and different times for everybody. But I think when you work together with your child, uh, you know, adult child, a young adult child in some sort of a project, particularly a creative one, uh, that just, it, it hastens that mutual understanding so it's kind of a neat thing above and beyond the art that you might create and writing could be such a solitary activity Mm -hmm. uh, that when you can find ways to bring your family in uh, jack actually taught me the word defenestration which means to throw out a window and it features prominently in suicide squeeze because of him being obsessed with the word and uh, my son victor who's my sports kid he helped me figure out the uh, the coup de gras, the climax of Suicide Squeeze. I knew I wanted to mimic a baseball game, and I was having trouble figuring out the positions of the players. And he sat down with me, and we must have spent two hours figuring out who was where, what they did, how they moved. And you know, some of the stuff that, again, physically I'm not as sharp on, it was intuitive for him. And he's not a very imaginative, like he's not, he's not a kind of kid who will role play type stuff. But when I took the concept and put it into a sports theme, oh, he was all over it. And so that's why this book is dedicated to both of my boys. And yes, without them, my life would be woefully dull. <laughs> well, where can people find a Mysteries to Die For if they want to tune in? Mysteries to Die For is available wherever um, people find their podcast. So Apple Music, Google Play, Spotify. Um, You can listen directly off my website, which is tgwolf.com. Episodes for the past season and all the current episodes are posted directly there. So you can catch up by hearing Widow's Run. And that'll set you up really nicely if uh, you want to pick up the new book, which is Suicide Squeeze. Uh, the newest diamond book out from uh, Down and Out Books. The author is T.G. Wolf. And uh, T, I want to tell you, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Frank. This has been a lot of fun. All right, folks, there you go. T.G. Wolf, her crime fiction and her podcast. Check them both out. You won't be disappointed. On the next episode of Wrong Place, Right Crime, we're going to talk to Martin Roy Hill, who has work drawing on uh, different parts of his life, including a stint in the Coast Guard and uh, some historical fiction as well uh, that I think you'll find interesting. I certainly do. That's next episode on Wrong Place, Right Crime. Zafiro update for this episode is there is no update. I'm working on a new book. I just finished a novella. Uh, I'll be able to tell you more about both of those in a future episode, but for now, uh, nothing new to report. I'd like to say thanks to T.G. Wolf for coming on the show, Down Out Books for sponsoring, and you, the listener, for firing up uh, this episode and giving it a listen. Uh, do check out T.G. Wolf's stuff, and we will see you here next week to meet and discover Martin Roy Hill. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.